Well, good morning, everyone. Hi, hi. My name is Matt, and serve on staff here. I love it. I love uh, the opportunity I get to every now and then come up and to share from God's word with you. Uh, my job at Seacoast is to oversee all of our life groups and our young adults group, and a little some other things. But that makes it really fun for me this morning to talk on this topic of community. Community. It's a big, big part of what we do here at Seacoast. Uh, we are Seacoast Community Church. And, uh, you know, but community is one of those words that can uh, easily become a buzzword. It can get thrown around a lot, and it does, and it does. And so, just like any other word, it can get kind of old and tired, and we can lose sight of what it means. And we do this all the time with all kinds of words. I'm guilty of this. My, my go-to word so many times is literally. You guys use literally, right? Literally a lot. You know, I'd say that um, literally. That movie was the best thing that changed my life, literally. Uh, I'm talking about Greatest Showman, by the way. Um, don't judge. Uh, the other word I, that comes to mind is like epic. Like we talk about, dude, that dinner was epic. Like, no, uh, actually what Frodo and Bilbo Baggins did was epic. All you did was eat sushi, you know, so chill. But we use these words and they get, they get old and they get familiar. And so, you know, I've heard it said that familiarity breeds contempt. And this can happen with words. It happens in the church all the time. It happens with words uh, like community. And so um, inside the church and outside the church, community gets talked about a lot. And it's for good reason, because community is very important. It's a, it's a vital thing for us. But my concern is that when we talk about community, and it, it, if we talk about it too much and not know what it really means and what, what we mean by talking about it, that it just becomes another one of those things that we have to add on to our to-do list. You know, our Christian to-do list that we, oh, we'd have to go and just check that off. Okay, I, I went, I was a part of my community, uh, however we define that at this point. Um, or it's like a, a detail that we, can, we could probably live without. Or we, we view community, that's that thing that exists for all the really needy people. I'm so glad it exists for those people, those types. Uh, but community is so much more. It's so much more than that. And today, I want us to, to, to see... If we were like to double click on community, I want us to kind of understand what is it that God had in mind with it. I want us to look at two things specifically, why community matters, and the second thing is what community does. And my prayer and my hope for today is that, that we all in this room, that we all gain a clearer uh, understanding of why community matters and what community does. And so that community isn't just a meaningless buzzword that we throw around here. So I got to be honest, when, I, when it came to preparing for today's message, I felt like the proverbial uh, mosquito at the nude beach. It's like, where do I begin? <laughs> just, there's just, it's such a huge topic, and there's, there's so, much, so much to talk about. And so uh, what better place to begin than in the very beginning of the story? Uh, and, and starting in the very beginning of the story, this will help us to understand why community matters. And so if you have your Bible, look with me to Genesis 1. It might be on page 1 of your Bible. Um, but all the way back in Genesis, we see the stage is being set. It's, and it's interesting to read about how all of this, how our lives and like the world, how it all began. Because by doing that, we actually begin to see it sheds light on why things are the way that they are. In the story of creation, as things unfold, we're given, like, we're given a lot of clues 
as to why community matters. And so in the first 25 verses of Genesis 1, you know, we see God, he's creating. He's bringing, he created light. He separated water from the land. He created plants and vegetation with fruit, the sun, the moon, the stars, the land animals and fish. And then we come to verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So it's interesting when you read that, like let us make man in our image, in our likeness. And I don't know about you, but I'm like, wait, wait, hold on, pause. Like, who's us? Who is he talking about? Well, this is one of the first whispers that we see, one of the first clues that we see in the Bible that, of the Trinity. And the Trinity, it's, it's not a word that is actually used in Scripture. We don't see the word Trinity in there. But what we do see as we read Scripture and as we discover, uh, or as we learn through reading Scripture, we discover that God has, is, there's one God, and that he's revealed himself, made himself known as three persons. And so this isn't the sermon where I tried to explain that. Let me let Ryan do that later for you guys. Uh, the important thing for us to see is that God has existed for eternity as a community. I mean, he could have revealed himself any way that he wanted to. He's God. But he chose to reveal himself as, hey, I'm one God, but there's three persons. He chose to reveal himself as a community. So we have God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Really, that's like the first small group that ever existed. He's in community. So when God creates man, when he creates man in his own image, he is actually hardwiring into man, into, into us, both the, the need and the longing for community. We are made in his image, and he's hardwiring that need and that longing into us. Like, you're going to have needs and longings that are going to reflect something about me. When God declared, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, he was declaring that all humans would reflect the relational nature of the Trinity. And the, the, the relational nature that the Trinity has enjoyed for eternity. And so this is huge. Like when, you're, when you feel the, I mean, the joy of being with people, but on the other side too, the sting of loneliness, when you feel the sting of being left out, when you're, you feel the sting of being unnoticed or unwanted, uninvited, there's a reason that that hurts. There's a reason because you weren't created for that. Your soul in that moment is experiencing a withdrawal from what you were created for, namely community and relationship. And this stuff, this has real-life implications, that God is a community. You know, uh, like a couple months ago, I think at this, yeah, a couple months ago, we were having a bonfire with our young adults, and one of our young adults came, and he was a little bit late, and he came, and I was like, what's going on, bro? And like, he's telling me, oh man, I didn't want to come, I, had to, I got off work late, I was so tired, I have so much to do, I have to go get shopping, I have to get laundry, I have all of these things. My like, bro, why are you here? That's a lot of stuff, let's go and do it. He's like, well... I've been, you know, I've been learning more about God and how God's a trinity and, he, and he's community. And so it made sense for me to, to live in that way too. 
I'm like, bro, that is literally epic. <laughs> the fact that his study of who God is and, and how God has revealed himself would shape the, the, his decisions after a long day of work, I'm like, that is, that's awesome. I love that. But the, that's the first thing that we see about why community matters, is that community is deeply rooted in who God is and how he created us to be. You see, God, he values community, and he's chosen to reveal himself as community. But he didn't just stop there. If you look at what happens next in the story, chapter 2, verse 18. It says, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Woo, preach. Now, this verse has always amazed me because we, we see, we think of Adam. He's like, it. Adam was his name. He's like, he's in the garden with God. It's, I mean, they're just, it's just, hey, it's me and you, man. And they have each other. Imagine like the, the one-on-one time that they were able to enjoy there. And we think of that like, that's perfect, right? But God says it is not good for the man to be alone. So it was just God and Adam, but according to God, it wasn't, it wasn't right. It wasn't finished. There was still something min- missing. And it's good to, to realize that it is not good for man to be alone. That wasn't the cry or the complaint of Adam. No, that, it wasn't, it, that didn't come from, from Adam being, I'm lonely. He, that came from God. It was, the dec- it was a declaration of God as he communicated his creative design. This is God's idea. And, I, you know, I've done, I've done a lot of weddings, and I, I talk about this passage, uh, you know, that it's not good for man to be alone. And this passage is always, for me, it's, it's been a very marriage-central passage, and it's very much about marriage, but it's not just about marriage. You see, it did not say, it's, God didn't say, it's not good for the man to be single. No, it said, it's not good for him to be alone. You see, we need others. But this truth that we need others and, that, and who God is and as community, this really pushes back against the way a lot of us live our lives, including myself. You know, we live in a society that's obsessed with, like, autonomous individual, individualism. You know, we, we live in a culture, it's all about DIY, like, do it yourself. You know, do it yourself, do it yourself, or the, in the, the book, the bookshelves and the best-selling list are filled with self-help books. We love this idea of like doing it for ourselves. Self-help, I can do it. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps and I can get it done. And this, this uh, ideology of individualism has really, it's seeped its way, it's weaseled its way into the church as well. You know, I grew up with this sense of like, you know, I guess it wasn't explicitly taught, but it was implicitly caught that you know, Christianity and spirituality is just about God and me. It's about Jesus and me. Jesus is my homeboy, and like we're, we're hanging out, and that's really all that matters. But I to, I'm sorry to say, and I've come to realize this, that, that the Jesus and me religion that we see in modern Christianity is not the Christianity of the Bible. It's not. From the very beginning, we see that we are created for community with God and other people. God, he created us to reflect, to image forth himself. And as image bearers of, of God, we reflect the Trinity community as we live and do community together. And so let me just be clear, is that you and myself, we are not strong enough 
We're not capable enough, spiritual enough to successfully follow Jesus and live out his calling on our lives on our own. You're not strong enough or spiritual enough to successfully follow Jesus and live out his calling on your life on your own. You're not and I'm not. If we're going to live according to the way that God designed us to live, and if we're going to do what God placed us on this planet to do, it is going to happen in the context of biblical community. You see, there are no lone rangers in the family of God. It's hard because we live in a culture that elevates just the self-made person. Each of us here, we don't want to be seen as like, oh, I need people. There's something alluring, attractive about the, like the person like, I, I got life on my own. And we all tend to gravitate towards that. But it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for us to be alone. Uh, but God sees the need, and then he provides Adam with a companion. So if you jump ahead to verse 21, it says, So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Verse 22, then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. Some would say that he got ribbed off. I'm practicing my dad jokes. Don't roll your eyes. Verse 25, it says, the man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. They were naked, and they felt no shame. You see, Adam and Eve, they, they experienced True community, both with each other and with God. They were naked and unashamed. And that's really a beautiful picture about what we all long for. To be seen for who we are and not rejected. To be seen for all, everything that we are and to to be loved. To not have any shame about that. And so this is a big picture of why community matters. It's a whole lot bigger than what we tend to make it. It's about, this is about, about learning who God is, about experiencing more of him. And there's much that can be said about it, but what we see right here about why community matters is because it is about who God is, and that we are his image bearers. And cultivating a community together, we are putting on, dis- on display God's image in a world where the ideology of individualism runs rampant. So that's, that's a, a big picture summary of why community matters. Secondly, what community does. What does a community do? And to set the stage for what a community does, we have to look at what comes next in the story. Because if you know the story, you know that it didn't take long for things to just come, become unraveled and to fall apart. Genesis 3, it tells us about how Satan deceived us into believing lies about the one true God. He deceived us into thinking that we could be our own gods and take matters into our own hands. Genesis 3, verse 6, it says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. 
Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. So it's, it's interesting to see what Adam and Eve do immediately following their disobedience, immediately following the rebellion against God, is that they go and hide. That's the first thing that they do. Their, their first response was to hide and then to cover themselves up. To hide and to cover. So they hid their bodies from each other with fig leaves, and then they hid themselves from God among the trees in the bushes. You see, there's just... So much hiding happening, so much covering. But that's what sin does. That's what sin does. It, it breaks the relationship and it produces shame in our lives and it sends us into hiding. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said this once, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. See, the isolation is dangerous, but that's what sin does. It breaks things apart. It fragments relationships. It separates us from God, from others. And in their hiding, Adam and Eve, what, they were keeping themselves from what they actually needed the most. Love, restoration, grace. But they were hiding they were keeping themselves from that. You see, they wanted to become invisible, but what they really needed was to be found. They needed to be found. They needed to be seen. They needed to be rescued. And that's the same, the same thing is true of us today. Our sin and our brokenness can cause us to feel and to be filled with shame. And many of us are, we have this fear, though, of if people know us, they're going to reject us. You know, we, we think to ourselves, we all have this at some level. If you, if you really knew me, if you really knew the things I've done, the things I'm doing, the things that I'm thinking about, the things that I've failed to do, if you knew me, if you saw a picture of that, even a small little slice of that, you would want nothing to do with me. And so we get really good at pretending we get, we're masters at crafting our own fig leaves to cover up. We all fear rejection. Just like Adam and Eve, we have the inclination to hide as well. And we may not be hiding out in the bushes. You know, we may not be hiding in the trees, but we hide the parts of our story that make us look bad. We hide and minimize our failures. We hide the parts of ourselves that we see as unlovely. And we may not be Act, like covering ourselves with fig leaves, literally. But we're all pretty good at covering ourselves up with all kinds of things that will keep people from seeing who we actually are. It almost doesn't matter what it is. We all have our functional fig leaves, and it, it doesn't matter what it is. If, if it promises to cover up that brokenness and that emptiness and that longing or broken, whatever, inside, if it promises to cover that up or a little bit, it doesn't matter what it is, we will take it. Wrap it around ourselves. Do anything to cover up that inner sense of brokenness we feel. But then something incredible happens next in the story. 
in the garden, we see God pursue Adam and Eve. He pursues them. Their response was to hide and to cover themselves in shame, and his response was to pursue and to cover them. He pursues them, and he calls them out of hiding. Calls them out of hiding, and then he covers them. He covers their nakedness. And I'm so thankful that we have a God who pursues. We have a God who comes after us. We have a God who who comes to find us, to call us out of our hiding, and not to shame us, not to slap us on the wrist, but to cover us, to love us. And what I love about the Bible is, like, as you're reading this, there's these hints and these whispers of like, oh, man, centuries later, we see Jesus show up on the scene. We see Jesus who came from heaven to earth to pursue us, broken, sinful humanity. He didn't wait up in heaven for us to climb up to him with all the, the fig leaves of our good intentions. He came down, he pursued us, and I love that this is foreshadowing, the, not just the, it's foreshadowing the ultimate covering. You see, in the garden, God killed an animal in order to cover Adam and Eve. Something had to die, you know, because they had fig leaves and he upgraded them to leather. It's like, I'm going to give you something a little, a little better that it's not going to wither away here. He, so some, but something had to die in order for them to be covered. Well, in the same way, centuries later, we see Jesus show up and he dies in our place and rose to life in order to provide us with the ultimate covering of forgiveness, of righteousness. The Apostle Peter wrote this in 1 Peter 2. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says this, We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. You see, the good news of the gospel is that in Christ we are given once and for all forgiveness. Once and for all forgiveness, which means that we can come out of our hiding. We can come out and experience healing. And it's only when we come out of hiding that we can actually begin to experience healing. And this is what a gospel-soaked community does. This is what a gospel-soaked community can provide. And what's amazing about about community that's shaped by Jesus and his love for us, what's amazing about this is that we can come together and we can actually reenact this whole idea of, of allowing people to come out of their hiding, out of their shame, and to be recipients of God's grace. We get to reenact the rescuing and the healing grace to one another. We get to tangibly express that to one another. And so, so biblical, gospel-saturated Jesus-centered community, it's a place and it's a context for us to come out of our hiding, to put down our mask, to remove our fig leaves. But here's the thing, as soon as we do that, and you guys know this to be true if you've, if you've done this before, like, it's a very scary thing as well. It's one thing to be up here and say, you're like, this is like how awesome it is to come out of your hiding and then just do it. Here's my mess, but it's a scary thing. But check this out. I love how Tim Keller puts this. He says, to be loved but not known, well, that's comforting, but that's superficial. To be known and then not loved, that's our greatest fear. That's rejection. But to be fully known and truly loved, 
Well, that is a lot like, like being loved by God. And is, it is what we need more than anything. You see, to be loved, we have to be known. Really, you can't love what you do not know. And I, I, would, I would imagine that there's a lot of us here in this room today that, are not, that we're not experiencing that love and grace of Jesus because we can't admit our need for it. We're not allowing ourselves to be known. But to, to be truly loved in community, we have to take that step. We have to allow others to, we have to allow others in. And I, I truly believe that community, when it's shaped by Jesus, it's soaked with the gospel, that becomes the best context for that to happen. Jesus uh, told his disciples, which is cool too, to think Jesus comes to, to, on his mission to rescue, redeem mankind. He's like, I'm not going to do this alone. The fact that Jesus made it a priority to gather other people around him is a, a huge statement in and of itself. But he says to his disciples in John 13, he says, a new command I give you, love one another. And as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You see, the, the command there is to love one another, but the question is how? As he's loved us. You see, God's radical one-way love it pursued us, it forgave us, it covered us, and it brought us into his family. That kind of love is what fuels us to love others, to love each other, to allow ourselves to be loved. The self-sacrificial love for us is what compels us, it's what fuels us to give ourselves for others. The Apostle Paul said this, he says, For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. You see, the vertical love that we've received from God, the vertical love that comes to us, from God through Christ is meant to propel, to compel our love for one another horizontally. The vertical love is, is meant to produce that love horizontally. And community, when we come together and it's messy, it can feel dysfunctional, but it, that is the context in which we get to experience and express God's love. And we experience the love of God in really tangible ways. And the the scriptures are filled with a lot of different ways that we can love each other. You know, one of them is in Galatians 6.2. He says to carry each other's burdens. To carry each other's burdens. And there's a lot that could probably be said about that. But I just, just make the point that we were not intended to, to bear life's burdens on our own. And life is a burdensome thing, is it not? We all have burdens. You know, over the last couple of years, the times that I've experienced most God's, his tangible love for me is through other people. You know, and, and the times that I experience God's love the most, it's not when everything's great and there's smooth sailing and life is awesome. It's when the storm hits, when things unravel, when things fall apart. That's when I, I've experienced God's tangible love through his people the most. To be embedded 
in a community that shows up in your pain and in your loss. I mean, that, that is how I've experienced the tangible, loving, healing touch of God in my life. And I know that in this room, there's, there's many of you guys who could say the same thing. And that's one thing I love about Seacoast is that we're a church that leans into the pain. I love that, and I love seeing how the people of God come together and to minister that grace to one another in their times of need, and that God uses us in our communities and our, like the relationships to distribute grace, to care, to carry one another's burdens. And so I'm so thankful for the people at Seacoast, like our community, our life group, our mentors, the people who have, be, have become spiritual parents to us. And I've got to see and to experience God's unflinching love for me through his people. Because I can believe, God, I know you love me, you accept me. I can, I can believe that, you know, in my head. But when you experience it relationally with a person, something happens. It changes things. So in addition to carrying each other's burdens, another way that we can love each other and grow in community is by the words that we speak to one another. Uh, in Ephesians for Paul writes this, he says, we will no longer be infants, this is uh, chapter 4, verse 14 through 16, we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. You know, one of the ways that we are to love each other is by speaking the truth in love to one another. And Paul is saying that to the degree that we are doing this and we're speaking the truth in love is that we are safeguarding ourselves against falling away, against the being deceived. We're safeguarding ourselves from being deceived about the lies about God. And I know for some, when we talk about speaking the truth in love, we're like, I don't really like that because I've been on the receiving end of that. And I gotta say, that speaking the truth in love is very misunderstood and it's abused. It's not, say whatever you wanna say and then just tack on, I love you at the end. <laughs> like, dude, that haircut, wow, not good. But I love you. You know I love you, right? You know, like you're, you're such a jerk, but I love you. Yeah, it's not say whatever you want and then say, tack on, I love you at the end. It's not just, oh, we're supposed to say the truth and then, you know, there's any kind of truth. No, it's actually a specific truth that we are supposed to speak. Just a few verses later, Paul says this in verse 21. He says, surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. So the truth is not whatever you want it to be, and then I love you. It's the truth of Jesus into that person's life. And that is what it, what it means to love somebody, is speaking the truth in love. You're giving them Jesus. Because we, we live in, we, we love, we're all advice junkies. We love to try to fix people. I know I do. And we're called here to speak the truth. The truth is Jesus. He's the way, the truth, and the life. So we really, in other words, the truth that we're speaking to each other is the truth about Jesus. We're speaking the gospel 
to one another. We're sharing and reminding one another of the truth of like who God is and what he did through Christ and what he has done in and through Christ. And I don't know about you, but I struggle with unbelief. I struggle to believe that I'm actually fully accepted, fully loved, that God, he, that God accepts me and I'm truly forgiven. And it's when I forget to believe those truths, when I forget to believe the truth about who God is, what he's done in Christ, that's when I begin to hide. That's when I, that I, the shame that seeps up causes me to, to slip back into hiding or putting on my fig leaves, and I have to like, now I have to prove myself. I need to be reminded by my community, the people that, that know me, that, Matt, it's okay to not be okay. I need to be reminded of that often. I need to be regularly reminded of that so that I can, I can let my guard down. I need to be reminded that because Jesus was perfect for me, I'm free to admit my imperfections. I have nothing to hide, nothing to fear. And when that truth, that there is therefore no condemnation, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, when that begins to sink in, it begins to set us free. When it begins to sink in, we can finally relax. We can finally spend our life loving others and not lying to them. We can find freedom. And it's in those moments that when we open ourselves up, when we open ourselves up to experiencing God's loving and liber liberating grace in our lives, it's, it's in those moments when we open ourselves up that we experience those things. And I know this sounds, oh, this sounds great, you know, big vision of, of why community matters and what it does. All right, sweet, but again, if any of us have really had any experience with other people, it's like, you know, I don't know, the, the, the movie's not as good as the book. You know, there's a lot of like, this, uh, you know, we, we're like, that sounds great, but that's, any of us who have been rubbing shoulders with other broken people, we know light, it's messy. It can get awkward. Sometimes I wonder, God, what were you thinking? Like taking <laughs> broken, imperfect people and your plan to grow us into as a body was to place us in really close proximity with other broken, imperfect people. That was his plan. His grand plan for growing us. And I'm just like, seriously? And so I know that there's many of us here, we've been in, we've been in, close proximity to that, and we've been wounded. We've been hurt, and we've also been the ones to wound and hurt others. Again, it's been messy, but what I don't want us to do is don't believe the lie that you heal apart from community. That's where you, that's where you, uh, where you received your wounds, but God's way of this is it's actually where you're going to find your healing. You see, in every circumstance that happens in community is an opportunity to practice grace. It's an opportunity to receive it it's an opportunity to distribute it. And remember, it's not, it's not your or others' love for you that compels your love for them. Remember, it's Christ's love that compels us. It's not like you've given me love and it's like that transactional thing. No, it's the, the self-sacrificing love of God given for that. The love of Christ compels us. And how did he love us? When we were all deserving, doing a really good job. No, he loved us when we were at our worst. 
When we were at our worst, God gave us his best. He gave us Jesus. So don't be surprised when community gets messy. An author named Ed Stetzer said this. He says, as groups apply the grace of God to real-life situations, growth occurs. Will it become awkward at times? Yes. But awkwardness is a sign of progress. It is at that point you know you are bravely going where most people seldom go. It is a culture of grace dangerous? Yes. But secrets and covering ourselves with fig leaves is more dangerous and more foolish. You see, living in community, grappling with real life issues, embracing the gospel together, carrying, carrying each other's burdens, reminding one another of who we are in Christ, of our identity in Christ, speaking the truth of Jesus to one another, all of that in the context of a community, that is God's transformative platform. I like to say that community is God's greenhouse for growth and transformation. And here's the thing, though. It's like this, a lot, there's so many commands and, and things in Scripture that we are called to do in, in, in community that can't happen here in this context on a Sunday morning. You know, there's over 30 different one another's, you know, love one another, like those kinds of commands in Scripture that can't happen sitting in a row on Sunday morning. You know, we've been messing around with this. I want to geek out for a moment here. There's a metaphor that I've been using. I love it. But I want to imagine yourself uh, having to go on a road trip from here to the other side of the country. And you jump on a bus with people. And you know, the dynamic on a bus is you can get on, you're filled, filled with strangers, you're sitting next to them, you're you know, like you can maybe talk with the person next to you, but you don't know everybody in the bus, and you don't have to know everybody in the bus. And if there, there's ever one person speaking to everybody in the bus, it's the person up in the front with the mic, right? And check it out, all of the baggage when you're on a bus, where's that stowed? That's all underneath, out of the way. Nobody can see it. It's not messy. That's a bus environment. Very important to have a bus environment. But now picture yourself, you're still on that road trip. Now you jump in the 12-passenger van. Now imagine the kinds of conversations that you can have inside of a van. Now the luggage, the baggage is coming out. Now it's like by your feet. You're like, dude, what the heck is this? Like, oh, it's this baggage. It's, it's getting messier. You can all participate in one conversation, but you can still kind of be the guy in the back seat. You know, it's like looking out the window. You got your earbuds in. You're just like, you're not, you can still be a little aloof, right? But now imagine that same trip in a car. You, three other people, Imagine the kind of conversations you have driving across the country in a car with a few other guys, a few other girls. You know, so bus, van, car, just become this metaphor for, hey, Seacoast, we've, we've got a, an amazing bus. And the bus time, it's so, that's Sunday mornings, by the way. It's so, it's so cool to come together and to gather. We don't have to know everybody in this room to, to, to be able to participate in what God is doing as we come together and we worship through song and we, we, we sing the gospel, we hear the gospel. This is an important time, but we want to help people find community in, in vans. And there's a lot of people in vans who just, they need that time. I, I need to get into a car and really process things. And so there's just three environments that we're like, we want to do a good job at that. And I've, I've felt and have been on the receiving end of the benefit of all of those. 
And here at Seacoast, we have all different kinds of vans. Inside of your bulletin, there's actually a list of our groups and stuff. I just take, when you get a chance, check that out. Check that out and see if something like that would work for you if you're not in, plugged into a, a van. The community is, is important. We're, we're putting the image of God on display, and it's in community where we get to experience God's grace in tangible ways because we're being known. It's also a place where we get to express it to one another. I invite the band to come back up, and we're going to be transitioning into a time here of communion. I was reading this book called Beloved Mess, and I just loved this, this uh, excerpt here. I wanted to just close by reading it and sharing it with you guys. I feel like it just it sums up really well why we need community and what it can look like. The author writes this, I love God's people, but the community within the church all too often becomes about us and what we look like and not about who Christ is and what he has done for us. We lay out a specific standard of what a nice Christian should act like, dress like, speak like, and then we expect everyone to live up to our expectations. You know, this way of community, which isn't really community at all, leaves no room for screw-ups and shortcomings to be exposed, sin to be confessed, hearts to be mended. Such environments suffocate believers and often deny them the healing that they long for. Just imagine what a community of the church would look like, what it would be like if we all laid bare our messes before one another, it's a scary thought, isn't it? It would be hard work. It would force us to be long-suffering with one another. It would force us to free fall into grace. Yet it would be a beautiful picture of what the church really is. Sinners in need of a great Savior. Messy? Yes. But imagine the healing culture of the, uh, that the church could have if we all understood that we are just as broken as the person sitting next to us. The reality is that the church is only comprised of weak and messy Christians, whether they're admitting it or not. And yet, these are the very people that God delights in using. Yes, the church is a mess, but we are his beloved mess. And his work will continue to be done through us despite our mess. So although there are many ways the church needs to change, we need not despair. The church has always been a mess, and it always will be. What the church needs is, is more people who are brave enough to admit their mess and dive headfirst into the ocean of grace and invite others into the joy of a life of forgiveness and unearned love. I love that. And I, would, I want more and more for Seacoast to be a community where messy people can show up, where we can allow ourselves to come out of the hiding. We can experience God's grace, God's healing, because we are we're, we're, we're free to admit that we are not perfect. That we have a Savior. Because he was perfect for us, we're free to admit our imperfections and display that love, that forgiveness to one another. And what we do when we come to the Lord's table, which we're going to do right now as the band plays a couple songs, is we're going to the Lord's table not as people who have, have earned anything, we're going as people recognizing that we need that sacrifice. We need that, that forgiveness that he gave us on the cross, that that is ours. We're going to the table 
admitting that we're needy people. And so when you, over the next couple songs, when you want to, make your way over to the table, take the cracker, take the juice. Again, the cracker just is representing God's, Jesus' body which was given for us and the blood that he shed for our forgiveness. And this might be an opportunity too to go with, if you're sitting with other people you are, you're in community with, hey, let's go do this together as a family, as a couple. Jesus saved us as individuals, but he calls us into family. And this is the family dinner that we're participating in right now, remembering what it costs to bring us home. Let's do that now.